Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Rosie Collington. Hun er politisk økonom, tilknyttet University College i London og faktisk også statskundskab her i København. Hun har sammen med Mariana Matsukato udgivet bogen The Big Con, How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments and Warps Our Economies. Bogen er en undersøgelse af, hvilken rolle konsulenter spiller i moderne regeringer og i de offentlige sektorer, i ikke bare den vestlige, men faktisk i hele verden i dag. De beskriver det som et svindelnummer, ikke et ulovligt svindelnummer, og ikke noget, hvor de snyder nogen med uærlighed. Men de har skabt en illusion om, at de kommer med en værdi, som de offentlige institutioner og de private virksomheder har brug for. Så der er i bogen en lang kritik af brugen af konsulenter og de store konsulenthuses magt. Men, forklarer Collington også i den her samtale, man må forstå, at konsulenterne er ikke bare problem, der er kommet udefra, hvis man fjerner dem, så er problemet løst. Man må forstå konsulenterne som problem inde i den moderne stat. Fordi vi vil have stater, der er fejlfri. Vi vil have stater, der opretholder retsstaten og behandler alle ens. Men vi vil på den anden side også have stater, der er innovative, kreative, kan løbe risici, skabe nye løsninger på vilde problemer. Konsulenterne er også symptom på en krise i kapitalismen, på selve forestillingen om, hvordan vi skaber værdi, hvem der skaber den og hvem man skaber den for. På den måde der bliver selve den kritiske analyse af konsulenter til en konkret tilgang til ny kritik af kapitalismen og af den måde, vi tænker staten på. For der er også i Collingtons tænkning en kritik af venstrefløjens forestilling om, at hvis bare man rullede privatiseringerne tilbage, så man havde den gode, gamle, keynesianistiske stat fra 70'erne, så ville alle problemer være løst. Hvis bare man fjernede privatisering, udlicitering, outsourcing, så ville vi have en god og velfungerende offentlig stat. Hun siger, at skræmmebilledet af den dysfunktionelle gamle stat er overdrevet. Men hun siger også, at vi bliver nødt til at genopfinde selve statsmagten, hvis vi vil skabe løsninger på de problemer, vi står overfor. Vi må tænke den offentlige sektor anderledes. Vi må stille nogle andre krav til de offentlige ansatte, men vi må også give dem nogle helt andre frihedsgrader, end vi er vant til. Hvis vi vil have en kreativ, innovativ stat, der kan gribe ind, løse vores problemer, være med til at skabe værdi for os alle sammen, må vi også ændre vores forventninger til dem. I den her samtale kommer vi både ind på konsulenterne som problem, kapitalismen som problem, og især staten som problem, vi skal løse. Well, Rosie Collington, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. You're becoming a friend of the paper, or at least we're becoming fans of your work. No, thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be speaking with your wonderful journalist, and it's great to be here again today. <laughs> well, well, thank you. What, what's your? Um, uh, yes, I want to salute you first on on this. The big con. I've, I think consultants have on the left become like a societal evil, some someone that you can always put the blame on. And I never hear people say, "Well, I'm a consultant. I'm here to defend myself." And I think your book just does a wonderful job of of delivering critically kind of that. And that's helpful for all of us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's really what we hope to achieve with it. I don't know if you want me to talk a bit about 
um, how we came to this, or I guess that's one of the questions that we'll get to imminently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first, I want to know, how, what you, how did you come to uh, take an interest in political economy? What was your personal way to that? A few different ways, to be honest. I studied Arabic and political science for my undergraduate degree. Um, and I moved to Egypt in 2012. And it was during that time that I really, you know, it was it was a year after the revolution had just happened and Morsi was in power, President Morsi. And I became very aware, acutely aware, that the structure of the political economic institutions were really going to determine or were really going to be determining of the outcome of the kind of struggles that were happening day to day on the ground. And I, prior to this, hadn't been studying political science or political economy at all. I'd been studying Arabic and Spanish. And uh, when I finished my year studying abroad, I was instantly like, okay, I have to actually understand this, you know, in, in, in the way that I guess naive 19, 20 year olds uh, think that they can understand the world. Um, so so that was really kind of what, what set it in motion. Before I lived in Egypt, I didn't really have much interest in economic institutions and and how the economy works. Um, and then I got to do my thesis, with my undergraduate thesis with a wonderful political economist or, or African political economist. And then uh, I did my master's in Statskundskab at Copenhagen <laughs> University with the specialization in international political economy um, between 2018 and 2020. And it was during that time that I also met Mariana Matsukato. Um, and the rest is history, I guess. So I must ask you, what was it like coming to Denmark and study Statskundskab here? Because people always said, well, this is a very national education. This is for becoming a civil servant in the Danish state. It's useless for people coming from abroad. Yeah, it's interesting because it really wasn't like that when I when I was studying the course. You know, we did some really interesting courses focusing on kind of national issues. Everyone on my course on Statskundskab has to study often Lirat public law. And so I probably know the Danish constitution better than most Danes do. Um, uh, so we had some of this, but we, I mean, we had some wonderful instructors, some some globally renowned professors were teaching on the course at the time, Ben Rosamond, Ian Manners, uh, you know, also Danish professors who were kind of teaching on this, this course. Um, and they, they actually stopped teaching it in English the year that I finished my course, I think, because they said that you know, they, they've kind of changed the priorities of uh, which courses they wanted to make international. But I thought that was a real shame because it was a brilliant internationally focused course. And I think actually your work has been very helpful to us because what's annoying about being a Dane is that people always refer to Dane as this ideal public sector, this best version of, of capitalism. And it makes it very hard to be a leftist on the national scene here. But but it's and and very rarely we meet someone with you who come with a, with a, with another background and who see different public sectors in different states. I'll return to that, but I just say that's very beneficial to 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 us. So so this this book about the consultants. How did you come up with the idea for that? Yeah. So this was so both Mariana and I have been very interested in consultancies for a long time we were both kind of separately looking at this before I joined IIPP Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose as Mariana's PhD student in 2020. Um, I had 
become aware that lots of people were going into consulting. You know, when I finished both my political science degrees, lots of my friends went straight into consulting. But also when I was working for a UK public policy organization for a few years before I moved to Denmark, um, I had some experience working with consultants, working with one of the big four. Um, and it also kind of related to work, public policy work that I was doing on outsourcing in the National Health Service in the UK. Um, and then when I moved to Denmark, you know, again, this, this comes back to the, the question of, um, you know, why I'm so interested in Denmark, I guess. I, I wrote my, my, uh, my uh, uh, master's thesis um, on public sector digitalization in Denmark, in the Danish public sector, and the extent to which this had constituted a transfer or a privatization of infrastructure and management to the private sector. Uh, or, yeah, the privatization of this infrastructure and management. And of course, many of the actors involved in, in this process were consultancies. And that was also something that the Danish government had itself acknowledged in this report it wrote in 2017 um, called uh, E.T. Sturing Staten, I think it was called, and it was a kind of analysis of how the government had, yeah, uh, ended up transferring a lot, a lot of knowledge and management and responsibility to private vendors and consultants. Um, so I, this was this was what I went into my PhD wanting to look at the growth of this sector, the growth of outsourcing, the ways in which um, governments had perhaps unintentionally become hollowed out, right? So not, not in the way that we think of Margaret Thatcher or Reagan, you know, kind of consciously trying to shrink the state. I think what's more interesting in the case of Denmark and many other countries is the ways in which a process of privatization has happened without that being a conscious, explicit effort of the politicians and the civil servants. And 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 then well, there's a lot of research behind this book. You can see it in the index, uh, but I think you can also feel it with the way the book is written. That it's very it's a balanced book, but it's also a book written in a voice that's quite confident. Uh, and you can only write with that confidence if you have a lot of uh, research. Uh, and and how did you perform do the research? Yeah, good question. Um, uh, we started, I guess, or, we, you know, I, I had been researching outsourcing for a few years. Mariana, of course, has been also writing about outsourcing and researching capabilities for a long time. Um, so we started out sitting down and figuring out what we already had. And when we decided to write the book together, we realized, you know, we did already have quite a lot of research on this area. It wasn't like this was a totally new pro project when we when we began working on this. Um, but I did take also six months out of my PhD or seven months out of my PhD, which I'm also working on still. Um, I paused it for a long time to work full time on the research for the book because we wanted to do more interviews with management consultants and also people who had worked with them in the public sector, for example, during the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a very kind of, I guess, standard research process. We spent a lot of time reviewing existing literature. Um, and as you'll see from the book, you know, there is a huge wealth of brilliant academic literature in critical management studies, um, particularly from this brilliant group that you have at Copenhagen Business School um, with Len Seabrook and Rasmus Colin Christensen, this group who have done lots of research on the big four 
and accountancies and, and management consultancies and how their kind of knowledge flows. So that so there's lots of groups that have done really interesting research on management consultancies. What we wanted to look at, which is what is quite different to what kind of already exists um, in or what, what was already kind of out there, was how we can make sense of the growth of the sector and mm. the growth of these ideas and the growth of this kind of these knowledge structures that are so um, kind of present within the consulting sector and within the growth of consulting, we wanted to explore how this relates to the broader political economy and developments in capitalism, which is what the book set out to achieve. But of course, we also wanted, when you're writing a trade book, you know, it is very important, I think, to make sure that we are also bringing other academic work into a public um, or, or to a pu more public audience, because sometimes a lot of brilliant academic research just gets stuck behind, you know, academic journals. And and I and I like thinking that one purpose of uh, a trade book written by academics is also to bring some of this other literature um, out into the world. Yeah, and it definitely works as a transfer of knowledge from a quite closed field and into a more open public discourse. Um, as I said before, most of my friends, almost all my friends are on the left and they hate consultants, uh, even though they know people who are consultants and, and, and who are well-meaning and some of them are even idealists. And, and I was surprised to read your book. I learned a lot from it. What surprised you the most uh, doing the research? Um, I think the thing that surprised me the most is how much disillusionment there is among consultants themselves. Of course, I can't say we, we didn't do a survey of the consulting sector, right? We didn't do a survey of consultants. Um, so I can't tell you exactly how widespread disillusionment among consultants, among graduate consultants um, themselves actually is. But there is academic research and certainly from the interviews that we did with people, certainly from you know, more informal conversations that I've had with my friends who work as consultants or, or people who I know who have previously worked as consultants, as well as the kind of formal interviews we did, which well, of course not with my, my friends. Um, what you learn is that actually many people without us kind of sharing our own perspectives and share, sharing with them our arguments that we want, that we ended up putting forward in the book would come to similar conclusions themselves. They recognize that they joined this sector for, you know, often very good reasons because they wanted to have an impact in the world um, and because they wanted to be at the forefront of the climate transition. And these are things that the consulting industry promises graduates, in particular young graduates, um, when, when they are recruiting them. So, um, uh, and of course, you know, the salaries are, are much better than, you know, in many countries, the salaries are better than what people can expect in the public sector. Consultancies also promise, you know, learning opportunities and, and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, what, what we found is actually that many people we spoke to were disillusioned insofar as they, like these promises had not been fulfilled, but they were also able to situate their own role within the broader issues with the sector and its kind of role in promoting this the, or, or, or entrenching the dysfunctionalities of capitalism that we also identify in the book. The Financial Times even wrote about this recently, 
uh, they did a couple of interviews with people. So that was that was the most surprising thing to me, I think. And certainly since the book has come out, we were expecting to receive maybe more um, critical emails and more critical letters from consultants and people who work in the sector than we have done. Um, in fact, the opposite has been true. We have received on an almost daily basis, we received emails and messages on Twitter and LinkedIn from people who work as consultants or who have had long careers in consultancies telling us how long, how much they agree with what we've written. Um, so I guess that's been the most surprising part of the whole project. One thing that surprised me was that, that you really emphasized in the book that that uh, it's not that what they do is not just the result of rhetorical tricks by consultants, as some critical perspectives suggest. That's my original position. And mm -hmm. then you say this view of consultant doesn't explain why clients work with them in the first place. Public sector managers and business executives are not idiots, and that yeah. goes to my immediate and absolutely unqualified attitude um, towards consultant. What is it that we don't see? So this is why we have a couple before we start discussing, you know, the 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 confidence tree, the big con, before we discuss, we have before we have this chapter, which is the ways in which consultancies invest in creating a perception of value where perhaps there is not value creation. So so this kind of impression management stuff. Before we get to that, we look at the transformations in capitalism and in government that um, our economies, uh, wealthy economies in particular we focus on, um, have undergone over the past few decades. And we do this because you can't understand the growth of the consulting industry and the growth in demand for consulting services without understanding how the ideas about the role of government in our economy, the role of civil servants has been transformed through both the kind of periods of neoliberalism, but also, and I get, and again, this is probably more relevant to Denmark, the kind of third way ideas, these ideas that we come in quite hard on in the book around, um, like, uh, around this idea that the role of government is to steer but not row, which is something that became prominent in the decades after Margaret Thatcher and Reagan, um, where, for example, Tony Blair and um, uh, uh, Torning Schmidt, perhaps in, in, in Denmark, also um, had an idea that government had an important role in as an arbiter for what was or for determining what was valuable for society and, and steering the economy. But actually, if it didn't need to do things itself, or if or if it could be determined that it was more efficient and more effective to do things um, in the private sector, then as much as possible, government should still get out of the way. And we and others show, or we, we and others have shown that actually it was during, for example, Bl the Blair years in the United Kingdom, that the scale and scope of consulting in government really increased. Um, so so what, what we're arguing is that, of course, the kind of tricks and the, the ways that the companies invest in creating an impression that they are value creators. So the recruitment strategies from elite schools, the way that they you know, have these flashy PowerPoints or whatever, and that they have these um, kind of top level, uh, kind of what we call quasi-academic institutions. These are all ways in which they help to create the impression that they have this expertise and that they're able to create value. But that's not the whole story. The, the rest of the story comes from the demand side, right? From the fact that governments often and civil servants 
often feel like they um, do not have the capacity or they're not innovative enough to come up with the solutions that politicians want, that citizens want. There's also risk avoidance in the public sector because no one, politicians and civil servants, no one wants to be on the front page of Extra Blau or the Daily <laughs> Mail. Um, right. So, so this, this, all of these kind of uh, issues, which are a factor of the transformation of capitalism and the way that we think about government, these also have shaped the growth of um, consultancies and government and elsewhere in our economies. And, and these are like real existing dilemmas. These are dilemmas that will not go away, even if you remove consultants. That on the one hand, you want to be innovative and creative. On the other hand, you also want the public sector to be somewhat risk averse. You uh, so, so these so what what I'm suggesting or thinking when I read your book is that consultants are providing solutions to real problems. And even if you take the consultants away, the problems will still be there. You know, this is why at the end of the book, the solutions that we offer, the things that we suggest will work, are not just tweaking the contracts that governments have with consultants or improving the ways that um, you know, people in business manage their relationships with consultants or, or finding new ways for accountability, it actually requires a more systemic change. That's why the first thing that we propose is for, um, uh, for the way that we think about government to be evolved. We need to have a new remit for government. And of course, as you say, this isn't about allowing government and civil servants and politicians to just be completely wasteful with public money and take these massive risks right but there are ways of taking risks and this this happens in business by the way there are ways of taking risks and experimenting on a smaller scale so these are the kinds of things that also we look at more widely in my institute where like if there is a, a policy idea um, or a policy proposal a type of reform um, but we're not sure if it's going to work, if it's an innovative proposal. Instead of rolling it out across the whole country, why don't we work with a local government? Or why don't we see how this works in uh, a, a local community? And that way, if it fails, if it if it doesn't work out, then at least we won't have wasted kind of too much money. But also, as we also call for in the book, we should recognise failure. And this is something that innovators and innovate or, or, or you know our kind of background in innovation economics helps a lot with thinking in this way failure can also be a very useful resource for developing capacity for developing new ideas that might work better so we should also understand failure that might come from a kind of policy experiment or a way of kind of sandboxing a policy proposal or a form at a smaller scale as also a way of kind of developing and innovating um, proposals in the future but this also almost requires a, an entirely new way of thinking about the state and 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 the public sector in a very simplified model. I, I, I used to think that 60s and 70s were late Keynesianism and you believed in the public sector, the civil servants. Then you had the bureaucracy, people got crazy and you had the Reagan-Thatcher revolution on the on the right. And in Denmark, we didn't have the guts to do that. So, so you know, the conservative prime minister was not allowed to be photographed uh, near near Thatcher or Reagan. But we had the yeah. same, we sought market solutions to bureauc bureaucratic problems, which meant that for three or four decades, the left hasn't been very innovative about thinking about the public sector and and mm -hmm. uh, and and the state. I don't know if you agree with this very vulgar analysis, but but it does seem to me that this is a huge task that opens near the end of your book. 
yeah, I mean, great point. I think uh, I, I would I would definitely agree with with what you're saying. I think there are some things if, when we look at the UK, for example, we do have this narrative of, you know, nothing was working in the public sector by the end of the 1970s. And that's why Thatcher came in and, and all the rest of it. Now, that's not strictly true either. There were things that were working very well or if not working kind of um amazingly all the time working much better in public hands than they have done in private hands so you know natural monopolies like or, or, or the railways for example um is an example of something that wasn't working very well in public hands but it was what it has worked much worse uh, in private hands in the UK than in countries where the the government or the state has kind of maintained ownership over the railway so so th there are these things but we shouldn't also think that just kind of nationalizing everything and the way that things in the way that things existed and were structured in this very kind of centralized way um, as 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 we had things in in the 60s and 70s, for example, and, and we had these very hierarchical bureaucracies um, within kind of very big ministries in the public sector. That was how we governed these. That was how we governed the economy. We shouldn't necessarily just be thinking that this always worked amazingly beforehand. Anyway, you know, we've also got to think about who was making up, who who constituted the civil service at that at this time um, and, and whether we want a return to a kind of elite civil service, which is, you know, how, how it was broadly functioning in many countries at this time. It was it was not something that was opened up to most people in the economy to go and, you know, work as a civil servant, to go and, to go and be a public servant. Um, so, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree. We need to be more creative when we think about uh, government and the public sector. And perhaps, you know, one of the reasons why we haven't been able to do that on the left, why we haven't done that so much is because we're constantly fighting, uh, fighting kind of small battles against um, the privatization of particular services or um, the closure of, of, of services and and the cutting of budgets in, in, in welfare. And perhaps we should be thinking more at the level of what does the system look like? What does the state mean in 2023? Yes, this is like an old Danish politician said, we've been losing for so long that I'm becoming more and more conservative. <laughs> I'm, I'm more and more in love with what was. In this aspect, I'm curious what you think about what the, what the Joe Biden administration is trying to achieve all the way from there trade policies when Catherine Tai comes to Davos and says this is no longer a race to the bottom it's a race it's a race to the top when they're trying to reinterpret it, they reinterpret antitrust laws when they make the executive order saying well capitalism should be for workers now and of course these huge uh, investments uh, the chips act and the Re inflation reduction act which on the one hand is a reinvention of the investing investment state on the other hand, I also feel like now they're building a green industrial complex. They're building the next power concentrations of capitalism. How do you see this grand experiment in, in, in this scheme of things? Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, I will caveat what I'm about to say by saying that I am by no means an expert on this. There are great people in my department. Mariana, of course, has written quite a bit about um, the CHIPS Act and the IRA. But what I will say is that I think there is cause for optimism, which I don't say uh, as someone on the left very often. But at the same time, as with all government spending, the, mag the magic will be in the method, if there is a method. You know, mm. spending more money does not mean that we are going to have a green transition, that 
A, works that actually transitions our economy into a low carbon future and B, um, has outcomes that kind of benefit as many people as as possible. Right. There is a risk with with the, the, the huge investments that the US governments are making at the moment that we have a, a repeat of a um, de-risking state or that we or we end up just kind of falling deeper into a form of um, government that is that exists to de-risk green markets rather than you know and, and and this kind of feeds back into what you were just describing that becomes a kind of new form of green capitalism that provides avenues for growth with maybe not as much kind of green transition as there could be because um, conditionalities have not been set um, the, uh, the the government has not been able to uh, kind of retain profits or or, or, or or take revenues back from these investments and then redirect them into other new sources. So it could go lots of different ways. I think there is a big risk that um, we will see de-risking um, or we will see these investments kind of just turn into uh, forms of de-risking where ultimately the profits end up, the revenue ends up in the hands of shareholders um, who, who then get the decisions about where to invest instead of the kind of public purse. Um, but I'm optimistic because I think there are lots of people and lots of good, smart policy people who are trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yes, and we can see that people are getting inspired from the ambitions of, of mm-hmm. what, what, what they're trying to achieve in America. <clears throat> Another problem that I that was revealed by your book uh, was the problem of legitimizing decisions mm-hmm. in public sector and in business. There's this uh, phrase by Richard Sennett, uh, where he, he's complaining about what he calls power without authorities. Without authority, decisions being being made, but no one is defending or justifying the decisions, and people are getting laid off, and there, there's no one to, to really blame or no one to, to, to discuss it with. And that seems also to be, uh, the consultant seems to be, seem to be part of a symptom of that democratic failure to put authority behind power. How um, is, is that a correct reading of your uh, it, You know, I think that's a fantastic way of reading it. I wish that we had put it like that in the book, actually. Um, but what we <laughs> describe is that they that the consulting industry, one of the kind of important reasons that they are contracted, why management consultants are contracted, particularly in business, but also in government, is to help legitimize potentially controversial decisions. Um, so in business, this could be, or we see it all the time in business, where an executive maybe wants to go one way, maybe has an idea about the future strategy for the company, but another executive disagrees. And so the first executive will contract McKinsey or another consultancy, um, <laughs> essentially, and this came through our interviews, essentially to, to rubber stamp the decision of the first executive in the kind of internal battle against the other executive's decision. So so it can happen on on that level. We have also seen, and again, we talk about the implications for collective bargaining and labor um, struggles within, uh, within companies. We do also see this happening at the bargaining table, for example, um, in labor negotiations where a decision might be taken by an executive or a manager to restructure the organization or to shift to a new pension system. Um, and this might undermine or be antithetical to the 
collective bargaining agreement that is in place, but it can be very difficult for the trade union representative to challenge that if the kind of modeling of the analysis has been done by a consulting company um, and then placed in front of them because they don't have any access to the assumptions underpinning this model. We, we, uh, we did some interviews with um, the AFL-CIO or representatives from the AFL-CIO, AFL which is the big trade union federation in the United States. And they certainly believe that this was a much bigger issue than the academic research um, kind of currently recognizes. And they gave us some cases that we discussed in the book as well. Um, of course, this also happens in government. I can point to, I'm not going to name any names, but I have recently done interviews as part of my PhD um, in Denmark in the Danish public sector. And a case did come up where, where a decision made by a senior civil servant um, or conclusion of a, of a public sector team um, under a senior civil servant went against the decision of a politician and um, uh, in that situation uh, the decision was taken to contract out analysis to a consulting company um, to kind of help strengthen the politician's case in this in this negotiation so we do see that happening in the public sector as well did you see any counter strategies to to consultants did you see any any ways clever ways for instance for workers who were They, we're going to lay you off because the consultants have said we're going to streamline this or we're going to close this branch of government because uh, agency says we we, we we don't need that. What, what are, are there any clever counter strategies to that? Unfortunately, the ones that we've come across, the kind of examples that we've come across, you know, mostly actually come through informal conversations that we've had with people um, and usually require some huge commitment on the part of the public sector employees to essentially end up taking on the work that was going to be contracted out to the um, consulting company. So that's one thing that we do see quite often where if an executive or a manager in the public sector, for example, or in a business wants to outsource something for a capacity issue, if, if they believe that the kind of knowledge and expertise doesn't exist internally to develop a new strategy, um, we do see that employees can challenge this and have challenged this um, and kind of offer offer to do that work but you know that that becomes an additional work that they have to do um, so I can think of some examples of that in terms of other other like um, kind of sites of I guess resistance to this unfortunately we haven't we didn't come across many cases where this has been very successful part of the challenge and this is what we wanted to address with the book part of the challenge is that most people in the public sector and in business have got no real idea how this sector works and what they're up against when they are confronted with a decision to contract out to a consultancy Even if they, even if they have a feeling that this is not sensible, if they feel that we do have this expertise in house, um, or if they feel that it's going to be wasteful, they often aren't equipped to challenge it. And and what's the short version of what is the? I wanted to go go around all the all the other problems around, it, but what is the? If I was to tell someone this is the big con, this is what this is the trick that they're pulling. What's the short version of that? It's a confidence trick, but it's a confidence mm. trick that that is also a problem with how governments and businesses use them. It's a confidence trick that is dependent on governments also not having confidence in themselves and in their own abilities, um, as well as the actions of 
companies creating the impression that they have value creating uh, potential for governments. That was a very convoluted way of saying it, actually, but it's about the relationship. And we spoke about the dysfunctionalities of the public sector, or maybe more accurately, the perceived dysfunctionalities of the public sector, at least very often it is. But you also write that it that it that it reveals some of the dysfunctionalities of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are those? So when we look at how they've been used in business, the growth of consulting in the corporate world has also come with transformations in business. For example, the tra- uh, transition towards maximizing shareholder value as the dominant form of corporate governance in many firms. Um, part of why we've seen an increase in spending on uh, management consultants in companies that have adopted share- shareholder value maximizing models of corporate governance is because they have to be seen to be constantly seeking ways that increase productivity in order to increase kind of short-term profits that they then return to shareholders. So one of the kind of promises of consultants, or one thing, one thing that consulting companies can offer is to Im- increase profits and increase profit margins, increase productivity within firms. So it's not surprising that as companies have moved towards models of corporate governance that prioritize short-term returns over kind of long-term innovation or long-term um, long-term returns uh, that they have then turned towards consultants as a as as they have lost confidence in their ability to satisfy their shareholders. So it is functioning for some people. The, the dysfunctionality is not for everyone. It's it's still a dysfunction, right? Though, because it's this isn't how capitalism is supposed to work on its own terms. Capitalism is not supposed to work in this way. There is there are supposed to be accountability mechanisms built in based on the kind of information that that everyone can access. And on on those terms, the increased use of consultancies obfuscates the ability to access this information. That the kind of uh, fund fundamentals of capitalist theory are, are based on right the, the fundamental theories of markets is based on the ability to um, understand what is happening in in the rest of markets right and uh, uh, and and in many ways that the consulting industry distorts this some would also justify the use of consultants with the, this narrative of complexity saying well the, the world is becoming so complex you need so much knowledge from different fields that no one can employ all these kinds of, of, of expertise. And we want, we need the, we need the consultants because they can transfer knowledge from one field to, to another. And when I say it, I can hear how ideological it sounds and how much it opens. But when I look at this little newspaper, I also see that it's not entirely wrong that running this newspaper 20 years ago, uh, you didn't have to develop an app. You didn't have digital distribution. You didn't have blah 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 blah. So there's some truth to it, but but there, there's also an, an ideological part of it. How should we analyze this complexity argument as related to consultants? So there is an academic in in Australia called Svenja Kiel who has done some fantastic research. It was her, based on her PhD actually, looking at how the development of climate consulting in Australia was a response and in government was a response to the kind of increased complexity in 
government govern or in governance of the climate crisis. And so she argues that the increased adoption of kind of consulting tools and the use of consulting services in government for um, climate change adaptation is also a response or is a is 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 a response to this kind of growth of complexity in this area. Um, but I think, you know, it, we talk a lot in my institute about wicked challenges and wicked problems. There is also something about there are there are um, policy issues that are inherently more wicked than others. But wickedness is also a factor of our confidence in in approaching it and our, and our ability to take risks. Right. We If we recognize that the government is not always going to be right, um, then then it makes it much easier for governments to to do things and confront things that they know. If we also recognize that um, often the knowledge that governments have is specialist, the knowledge that civil servants have is specialist. And therefore, if we have a challenge that they are perhaps better placed to confront this challenge, they have a higher probability of being able to kind of overcome this challenge or to lead the kind of knowledge generation to crowd in the knowledge um, that is necessary for overcoming a problem. Um, or, and they are much kind of more likely to be able to do that than perhaps actors in a consulting company that has never spent much time in um, in government, then, you know, it, it kind of blows up then the response to the uh, the response to complexity being using consultancies. Why why would we think, you know, in the case of the pandemic, which, you know, in many ways represented kind of the most wicked of all challenges, it's not just that no one really knew um, how to approach the pandemic. No governments really knew how to approach the pandemic. It was also that governments had not invested and prepared in capacity in advance to respond to this. But why would we think in the case of, for example, procuring protective equipment for health workers or managing the rollout of a vaccine? Why would we think that Deloitte or McKinsey would be better placed <laughs> to lead the response to this or to play a central role responding to this than the National Health Service or um, health workers in government. It's not like they had done it before either, but they have been responsible for procuring um, public protective equipment since the dawn of the NHS and managing the rollout of vaccines. Um, so, so, so I think it's almost, it's almost, um, it, it identifies a problem, but it, but it's not the right response to to contract consultancy. So we have to understand then consultancies are contracted because we don't have faith in governments and because they are promising things that they probably can't offer a lot of the time. And the ironic part of that, I totally agree, is that when you talk to high level civil servants, even low level civil servants as well, they often have a more adequate understanding of complexities than consultants do because they have to navigate between the code of the law, the code of the citizen expectations, what, what you have in the different services, the, the different pro professionals. But what I think here, and I'm curious about how you see this as someone who's not Danish, but who is obviously familiar with the Danish, uh, is that I feel that here in Denmark, it's very, very difficult for people in the public sector because uh, the more the population expect from the public sector, the less they tolerate mistakes. I think people were more tolerant of mistakes from the public sector 30 or 40 years ago than they are today. And also because of social media and the level of accountability is very much about single issues. So on the one hand, they we have a public that's holding them accountable for all the little mistakes they make. On the other hand, there's also 
obviously a need for them to get space to experiment, to innovate, to be creative. And I feel this is like a fundamental dilemma of the, of the Danish welfare state today. How do you see that? Yeah, it's a great question because I think this comes back to, you know, it's also related to what we were discussing around the Biden government's approach. Um, because I think we have almost lost a politics of the how in the public sector and the how of public spending. You know, governments are, particularly during the pandemic, governments are spending more money than ever before. So many people kind of will look at look at governments where there have been perhaps conservatives in place and assume oh you know these are the more efficient these are the more effective these are these are better with our money mm. um without looking at the fact that you know actually these are the governments where spending on consulting spending on outsourcing has increased they are spending more money they're spending more money on on, on, on they're cutting public services they're cutting welfare services perhaps um but even in the nhs you know spending in the nhs hasn't really decreased it's just how that money is distributed has changed so i think that's that's the kind of where the public debate should be and it's not there instead we're at a debate or instead we're still having this debate around big state versus small state and actually we're in the era of big state you know we, we, that, that that's just how that's just how wealthy governments are working that's how wealthy economies are functioning now so the question shouldn't become big versus small because conservatives liberals left everyone's spending big the question becomes one of distribution and how governments are producing those services how the money that they're spent where the money that they're spending flows and I think that's a great way place to stop because I think this will be something that the green transition, inequality, all the great problems that we face, they 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 go through this dilemma of how to use the state and how to get beyond big or small states. Thank you so much, Rosie, for talking to us. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Jeg kan faktisk også snakke dansk. Jeg kan læse dansk bedre, end jeg kan sige noget på dansk. Men jeg har bare, jeg har bare sex for, at jeg, jeg foretrækker ikke at gøre mine interviews på dansk, bare fordi det er lidt svært. Men, uh, men jeg kan læse dansk fint. Perfekt! <laughs> Hold kæft, du er god til dansk. Det er virkelig, det er virkelig sjovt at høre. <laughs> det er sjovt. Jeg har aldrig prøvet med en langsom samtale, før at vi kunne snakke dansk. <laughs> ja. Perfekt. Tak. Jamen, tusind tak for nu. Fedt at snakke med dig, og så slut på dansk endda. Okay, vi ses. Hej, hej. Det var så min samtale med Rosie Collington. Den bog, hun har skrevet sammen med Mariano Mazzucato, hedder The Big Con. How the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments and warps our economies. Den udkom i februar i år på Penguin Forlaget. I næste uge, der taler jeg med den amerikanske forsker Erika Chenoweth. Chenoweth har lavet et omfattende empirisk undersøgende arbejde af, hvilke former for sociale bevægelser, hvilke former for offentlige protester, hvilke former for civil modstand, der rent faktisk virker. Hun har siddet på et enormt datamateriale over de sidste 100 års protester, demonstrationer, modstandsbevægelser i forskellige lande, og når frem til nogle ganske overraskende indsigter, om hvad der virker og hvad der ikke virker, og især hvor lang tid det tager at virke, og hvad er succeskriterierne for en popular uprising, hvis den skal lykkes. Den her udsendelse var ligesom de seneste udsendelser produceret af vores tålmodige hjælper og kreative kammerat Mads Adam Wiener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.